The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Sin is like the poison in the bloodstream, while sins are like the boils which break out in various parts of the body because of the presence of that poison in the system. It may startle some to be told that God never deals with individual acts of sins in anyone who is not a believer in Christ. But this is true, as the Bible abundantly testifies. God does not deal with a lie, a theft, or a murder in an individual who is not born again. In such a one, God deals only with the whole heart condition. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled His Unspeakable Gift. If you break the law, the judge may let you off with just a fine or a warning if it's your first offense. But just one offense against the law of God brings about His wrath and condemnation. God is so holy that anyone who keeps His whole law and yet offends on only one point is guilty of breaking the whole law and sits under God's judgment. How does God deal with our sin and offer salvation as His free gift? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with the message entitled, His Unspeakable Gift. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We delight to acknowledge Thee and to confess that there is none like unto Thee, God above all the forces, the principalities, and the powers. We submit ourselves in this hour to Thee and ask that in Thy sovereign grace Thou shalt bless the word as we send it forth to do Thy will. Use it to open the hearts of the lost and to strengthen the faith of those who have put their trust in Thy Son. And all these things we ask in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We come to the last verse in the sixth chapter of Romans. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 Now this verse, which closes the sixth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, is one of the best known verses in the Bible. It is short, easy to memorize, and has been taught to millions of children in Sunday schools, and has been used innumerable times by evangelists as a text for a gospel appeal. And yet I dare to say that the true meaning of this text is not evangelistic, but that it is a powerful argument in the whole line of reasoning 
that fills this portion of the epistle to show the believer's position under grace and to tear away the false teaching that would place the believer under any domination of any legal system. The evangelist, who wishes to stir the emotions and arouse the conscience of an audience, can find in this verse, if he does not know the true method of biblical exposition, he can find a springboard for his discourse. He can paint a picture of the vileness of sin and point out the horrible consequences that come from the commission of some sins, and then he can point to the cross of Jesus Christ and call men to faith in the redemptive work of the Savior. Now, all of these things are true and can properly be deduced from other texts, but they do not come primarily from this text. In the first place, the evangelist who uses the text in this manner is really teaching that the wages of sins, in the plural, is death. Now, that is not at all what this text teaches. There is a great difference between sin and sins, and it can be shown that many people will never collect the wages of their sins, either in this world or in the world to come. In order to untangle these problems, let us set forth briefly the difference between sin and sins. Sin is generic, and the fruit of sin is the individual acts of sins manifested in different persons in quite different ways. The soul died when Adam sinned and every man is born with that Adamic nature. It is with this nature that God deals. This is why the paragraph which precedes our text contains the flat statement that when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. Or, as other translations express it, you were free in regard to righteousness, or independent of righteousness, or... When you were employed by sin, you owed no duty to righteousness. It follows from this difference between sin and sins, and from the fact that God is not dealing with the plural sins in unbelievers, it follows that all men are alike, regardless of the quantity of acts that have been committed, and that the great condemnation expressed in the epistle of James is, of course, logical as well as true. Whoso keepeth the whole law, we read in James 2.10, Whoso keepeth the whole law, and yet offendeth in one point, is guilty of all. Now, when this is understood, there will be no further difficulty in understanding that a man who might have done no more wrong than tell one lie in the course of his life is just as much under the condemnation of God as the man who has committed all the sins in the book, including every act of violence and murder. For it has been abundantly demonstrated in our earlier studies that all men are alike before God and that all are shown to be of the same sinful nature and therefore under the wrath of God. The reason that our text is used in the midst of the whole teaching on the freedom of the believer from law and the consequent life of holiness that may result from the understanding of that freedom is that the apostle is showing the believers the great contrast between the life which was theirs by nature and that which is theirs by grace. Let us take, for example, the first half of the text, the wages of sin is death. Now, does this teach that hell is the reward for those that commit sin? I do not think that teaching is found here. In fact, I do not think that such teaching is found in the Bible. If you do this or that, you'll go to hell. Maybe a word that is passed around by people that do not know the Bible. But there is no such teaching in the book itself. 
and no Christian teacher who knows anything about Christian teaching should ever be guilty of saying such a thing. I believe that the Bible teaches the doctrine of eternal punishment, the eternal separation of the unregenerate from God, but this separation is on the ground of the nature of the unregenerate man and not on the ground of the acts of sin which he commits. And it follows also that the freedom of the born-again believer from eternal punishment is because Christ has dealt with the guilt of his sin and the nature of his Adamic nature, if I may so speak. Thus we understand that just as good works of human character do not save us, so bad works of that human character cannot cause our eternal loss. This text is teaching that the fact that an individual is living in his Adamic nature without Christ brings with it a continuing state of death here and now. The wages of sin is not merely something that a man is going to collect after he dies, but it is a state of existence, a cast of thought, a mold of mood and temperament, a particular outlook on life, a guarantee of frustration, and an assurance of defeat. The Greek word for wages is most interesting. It has to do with part of the rations given to the soldiers in the Roman army. In those days, soldiers were not paid as they are today. There were no pensions, no benefits, and little money. They lived off the fruits of their fighting and sold their prisoners to the slave merchants who followed the armies to battle. They received in money a small sum that was known as their salt money, and the Latin word has given us our English word, salary. And another sum they were given which was known as the fish ration, and it is this word which is used in our text. Its basic meaning can be seen from its usage by John the Baptist to the soldiers who were convicted by his preaching. They said to John, And what shall we do? And to this question he answered, Do violence to no one, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your rations. Now what light this throws upon the meaning of our text? The rations of sin is death. This is not something that's paid in a lump sum. This is something that comes day by day and which constitutes a state of living. The contrast is now made with the whole nature of the present life of the believer. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's to be noticed that most of the modern translations have added a word to the text as it is found in the King James Version. It is no longer merely the gift of God is eternal life but the free gift of God is eternal life. The reason for this change is the strength of the word in the original language. The common noun that is used for grace is charis. Now another noun is formed from this great word and is charisma. It occurs 17 times. It's always translated gift, except in Romans 5:15 and 16, where it is translated, as we have seen, by the term free gift. Literally, it would be rendered grace gift. This would make our whole text read, the rations of sin is death, but the grace gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we may put these two halves of the text together and see the contrast that is intended. An unbeliever has, as a part of his necessary rations of death, a mind that is filled with unsatisfied questioning. The believer has a part of his grace gift of eternal life, a mind that is filled with a quiet satisfaction of knowing. The unbeliever does not know where he has come from. The believer knows. 
The unbeliever spins theories of his origin. The believer rests in the fact that he was created by God for a definite purpose and that in Christ he has come into the accomplishment of that purpose. The unbeliever lives in an atmosphere of traveling and he knows not where. The believer lives in the stupendous atmosphere of having arrived. The unbeliever is described in the word of God as ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. This we read in 2 Timothy 3.7. Now this leads to a sense of underlying uneasiness in the one who has not been to the cross of Christ to receive pardon and eternal life. The testimony of countless believers stands as a united witness to the wonderful release which accompanies the coming of eternal life. There is a sense of elation that cannot be described and which continues in the believer as long as he is in fellowship with the Lord and which is restored as soon as he confesses any act of sin which may have caused the temporary loss of that fellowship. This is the quality which is known as Christian joy and which no unbeliever possesses. The unbeliever may know an occasional happiness, but such happiness happens perhaps, as the word signifies, by the chance of the pattern of events. But the believer knows the joy of eternal life even in the midst of the most adverse circumstances. This is why Paul was able to say that he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And of course, one of the sharpest contrasts between the rationed death of the unsaved man and the constant dividends of the grace life of God in eternal life is the difference in attitude in the heart of the two with respect to the future. Part of the work of Christ on the cross was to relieve the ransomed ones of all fear of death. We read in the epistle to the Hebrews, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There are some who are able to hide this bondage of the fear of death under a veneer of culture, but the reality is there. We have but to read the memoirs of the unsaved to realize this. Strong fear is evident in the writings which have come to us from the pagan world, and within Christendom itself there are many unbelievers who have spread their naked fear of death in almost immodest fashion. There is a most embarrassing illustration of this in the private letters of the late Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, addressed to his friend Lord Pollock. Bondage, the New Testament describes it well, bondage that results from living with the fear of death. And this is what Justice Holmes has expressed in his diaries. It would be possible to continue this list of contrasts between the life of the unregenerate and that of the one who has received the grace gift of God in eternal life, but what we have set forth is sufficient, and we are able to turn now to a closer examination of the gift itself and the results of its present possession. For it must be noticed once more that eternal life is not something that is in the future, but something that exists at present in us and for us. It is true that there is an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. But that phase of salvation is no more than the fruit 
that shall be formed from the blossom that is already flowering in the life of those who have been born from above. A close study of the characters of the Bible will show that the care of God was surrounding those whom he had chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, even before the time when that life became theirs in full possession. Look at the way God, who had watched over Abraham when he was a devil worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees, long before he had the remotest idea of the existence of the true God. Consider the way in which God watched over Jacob throughout his tricky youth, caring for him and revealing himself to him, even when Jacob was running away from the consequences of his evil deeds. And the same can be said not only of the Bible characters, but also of the great names of church history. We've only to think of the early life of Augustine, Savonarola, John Bunyan, John Newton, and a host of others to realize that the Lord had his hand on these men long before they came to the moment of knowing eternal life. And I am sure that many who listen to these words can say with me that they know the Lord was with them from their infant years, caring for them and protecting them and leading them into the way of righteousness in Christ until, having imparted to them the reality of new life, he made himself known more and more. Even during the years when we were resisting him, resisting his will, he was surrounding us with his loving care and showering us with all goodness that we might be led to repentance. The coming of eternal life into the being of the one who is the object of God's grace is according to a definite pattern which is set forth in the word of God. In practical experience, it may seem to us that the process is infinitely varied. But when we check with the word of God, we will discover that the variation is within the strict limits of the pattern which is set forth in the pages of the divine revelation. First, the inception of this life is with God and not with man. No man ever set out to choose the true God. We have seen this in some detail when we considered the passage in the third of Romans, which states flatly, there is none that seeketh after God. The fact that the salvation of an individual begins and ends with God is stated both positively and negatively. Positively, we read in James, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a certain first fruit of his creatures. Negatively, it is stated in both the Gospels and the Epistles. In John 1.13, being born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then again in Romans 9, So then salvation is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Second, the implantation of eternal life within an individual is the creation of an entirely new life principle and has nothing to do with the changing of the old Adamic nature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And this new creation comes by the new birth, which is the work of God, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And it is by his divine power that are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Third, the implantation of the divine nature, which is the eternal life, does not change the Adamic soul in the slightest. That nature is the carnal mind which is enmity against God, which is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. That nature is the heart that is deceitful above all things and incurably sick. 
Anyone who thinks that the Adamic nature can be eradicated is deceiving himself, we read in 1 John, while anyone who thinks that it can remain and be anything other than its cursed self makes God a liar, as we read in 1 John 1.10. For God says that that nature can never be changed. But the coming in of the divine nature, which is the eternal life, sets up an opposing force, an opposing mastery, which is to claim the allegiance of our being. For the spirit of man, which had, we might say, fallen into the soul at the time of the fall, is now released and set in its proper place. The will is freed for moral choices, and there is power placed within which is capable of sustaining that will and drawing it into the divine will. And thus the free gift, the grace gift of God is eternal life, and that life becomes the sustaining, maintaining principle by which all of the Christian life may be lived moment by moment. So we see that far from being a text which sets forth the gospel for the unsaved as a threat of death for wages and the offer of future eternal life as a gift or reward, our verse is the expression on the one hand of the principle of the daily nourishment of the existence of the unsaved by the rations of death, which gives its ghastly tone to all of that existence and on the other hand, it is the expression of the supernatural principle of the entrance of the divine life into the being of the one who is quickened by the Lord. And the entrance of this divine life is not in the future, but at the time of regeneration. And its entrance creates the possibility of victorious Christian living day by day with the slavery of sin ended and the domination of the Holy Spirit assured. The human spirit which had fallen into the soul when Adam sinned, bringing man into the bondage of death and removing the divine image from lost man is now lifted to its place of freedom. The divine image is restored. The captive will becomes once more a free will and conditions are established which make full obedience to the righteousness of God in Christ not only possible but increasingly practicable. Full obedience and triumph in Christ becomes a thing not only to be desired, but more and more to be expected. Finally, our text ends with the expression of the source of this transforming power and new triumph by setting forth the triple name of the Son of God. This grace gift becomes ours, it is written, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us remind ourselves once again that the name Jesus comes from the Hebrew common noun for Savior, that the name Christ is the Greek word for the anointed one, the Messiah, and that the title Lord is the translation of the ineffable name Jehovah. When we read, therefore, that the grace gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, we are saying that this free gift comes to us through the Savior Messiah Jehovah. In such an expression is bound up all of the eternal planning of the deity, the whole work of the incarnation of the Son of God and the atoning work on the cross of Calvary, all that Christ did for us. When the infant child was to be born to the Virgin Mary, the angel announced, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this is the name of the cross, the name of shame that was turned to triumph. Throughout the Old Testament, he was announced as the Messiah. And this is the name of the promise that binds all that the Lord Jesus did to the word of God in the Old Testament revelation and gives direction and plan to all that he accomplished. 
But the title Lord, Jehovah, is that which gives value to all that was planned and all that was done. For though man might accomplish a work for one man, it took the Lord Jehovah to accomplish the work of our redemption and to bring us the salvation that we can call full salvation. So let us constantly praise God, saying, Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And our Father and our God, we do thank thee indeed for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the way that thou hast quickened us when we were dead in trespasses and sin. And we ask thee, Lord, that there may be upon all who listen the great sense of urgency, that now is the accepted time and now is the day of salvation, and that believers may come to know thee better and love thee more as they contemplate the nature of thy death for us. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now and until the Lord Jesus come and forever. Amen. Jesus Christ came to take away our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God gives you the free gift of eternal life when you trust in the atoning death and resurrection of His Son. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, His Unspeakable Gift. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, His Unspeakable Gift, or simply request message number R6-39. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, What God Has Joined Together. In the book of Malachi, God declares that He hates divorce, and yet in America, the divorce rate among professing Christians is virtually the same as that of unbelievers. This booklet will show you from Scripture how important marriage is in God's eyes and how to maintain a strong, healthy relationship with your husband or wife. If you want to build a biblically sound marriage that will glorify God and stand the test of time, ask for your free copy of What God Has Joined Together When You Call or Write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials, which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please, won't you prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air? For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call us toll-free. 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed theologians and teachers such as Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.